0: The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Amen. Amen. Hey, welcome to Summit Church today. I don't know if you noticed, but it's chilly outside and uh, there was a little bit of ice. I come in through this north door and I'm flying in. I'm a little late getting back from Norman and I hit it. And uh, if anyone had been filming it, $10,000 on AFV for sure. Um, So I I am a little little like, okay, let's just calm down right now today. So uh, anyhow, uh, thrilled that you're here. If you were with us last week, we started our project Christmas for 2024. And if you are you're unfamiliar with that, Uh, for 14 years, uh, the 14 years we've been a church, every Christmas we've tried to raise funds to donate. Every penny of it goes outside these walls to local mission organizations, to water wells, to uh, just entities and organizations that are being the hands and feet of Jesus, that are glorifying God, that are advancing his kingdom, that are reaching the least of these. And we ask each of our families within the church, uh, total, there's well over a thousand people that call Summit their home. Uh, And so if every person just did a little, and what we call a little is if every person gave $50, we would reach our goal of $55,000 for Project Christmas 2024. And all that entails is you having a conversation with your family. If you have a conversation saying, you know, maybe to your kids or to aunts and uncles, whoever else you might be buying presents for, if you just say, hey, look, instead of a sweater you don't want, what what if that $50 went to help feed someone or helped uh, help someone in addiction recovery? What, what if what if that? What if we did that instead? What if we made Christmas about giving and not receiving? And having that conversation is not hard. Now, my kids, we don't have to have the conversation anymore. They're just like, I know we get $50 less. All right, so like we're working on the heart piece, but they understand the math piece because we've had that conversation so often. Uh, So just have that conversation sooner rather than later. And if everyone does their part, we easily reach our goal. And the impact that happens from that is truly huge. If you want to give, all you have to do is go to our website, summitonline.com. TV, right on the very front page, huge Project Christmas banner. You can't miss it. Uh, just start to have that conversation really sooner rather than later, please, so we can reach our goal and celebrate what God does all next year through your generosity. Uh, we're finishing, as Jared said, we're finishing a three-week series called Deny Yourself. Next week, we'll start our Advent series because, believe it or not, Christmas is a month away. Uh, we're a month from Christmas. Somehow that's all happening so fast, but we will start our Advent series next week leading up to our Christmas Eve, Eve service. But today, we finish a series that's really just been about one verse. So we've had three weeks to cover one verse. And in this verse, Jesus makes a demand of those who want to follow him. Week one, Jesus said, I need you to deny yourself. If you want to follow me, I need to be the controlling entity in your life. It can't be you. I need you to deny yourself. Last week, week two, we looked at Jesus saying to take up your cross. What does that mean? It means to fully commit, to daily fully commit your life to him and to live like him. And that ties perfectly into the last phrase, the one we'll look at today, where Jesus asks his disciples to follow him. Now, once again, just like last week, where take up your cross is maybe a little bit foreign because we don't understand it in the historical context of a first century Jew, the words follow me, those two words, they have such huge meaning to a first century Jew. They were the words that every young Jewish boy wanted to hear. These were huge words that had great meaning. Before we unpack that, though, let's just read our theme verse for the last time in this series. Matthew 16, verse 24. Here's what it says. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to be my follower, must deny themselves, week one, take up their cross, week two, and follow me, week three. These were the words that every young Jewish boy in the first century wanted to hear. Because to hear these words meant that a rabbi, a teacher, a spiritual leader, the, the pinnacle of social society in every town and Jewish society, culture, the, the rabbi was it. That meant a rabbi looked at you and said, I want you to come learn from me. I want you to grow in knowledge and stature as I tutor you, as I shepherd you. And then when I'm done, when I retire or when the Lord takes me home, you are going to be me. You're going to fulfill my role. You're going to step into my shoes and you're going to be the rabbi of this community. I'm choosing you to be me. And those are the same words that Jesus used. Now, I don't. you're not supposed to use athletic illustrations in church because not everyone likes sports. You're not supposed to use them. But I, I want to liken it to this. These words, follow me, were so special, were so sacred to a young Jewish boy that they're just the same as any athlete. Anyone who ever played Little League sports and anyone who played Little League sports, you had this thought at one point. You're like, I, I would love someday to hear. And with the number one overall pick, In the 2026 draft, the whatever-whatevers choose and then to hear your name. So with the number one overall pick, those were the words. We dream of hearing it. Thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of kids, they have that idea of hearing their name called. Very, 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 very few people actually get to hear those words. These words, follow me from a rabbi, were just as rare. You didn't hear them. You didn't get to hear them. But yet, Jesus says to his disciples on this day in Matthew 16 24, I want you to deny yourself. I want you to take up your cross, and I want you to follow me. But that was not the first time he used these very special words, he used them at the very, very beginning of his ministry. And I want to look at that in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. I want you to see how these words impacted four men's lives. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew. Now, Simon is Peter, just hasn't had his name changed yet. So, Simon, Peter, his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. That's what they did for a living. Come, follow me, is what Jesus shouts from the shore. And I will send you out to fish for people. I'll change your life. I'll change your perspective. I'll change your purpose. At once, they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. He said the same thing Come, follow me. It's a call to come do what I do, teach what I teach, and represent me in my absence. It's a call. He said, come follow me. He called to them, and they left their father, Zebedee, so they leave Dad in the boat. But unlike Peter and Andrew, John and James, they had a much bigger fishing empire. They had hired men in the boat, so they left the hired men with Dad, and they went to follow Jesus. They were going to inherit a pretty nice fishing business when their father, Zebedee, died. But they left it all. Peter and Andrew just left their boat and their net right there. And they followed Jesus. What would cause grown men to just quit their profession so abruptly? To just leave everything they were doing and follow someone that they'd heard about. They'd heard about Jesus. He'd only been on the scene for really a few weeks, but he'd done some miraculous things. There was quite a bit of buzz. People were talking about how well he could teach. So they knew who he was. We don't have any knowledge of whether or not they'd ever actually met one another. John the Baptist, who at least Andrew was a disciple of, had been talking about Jesus and had identified him as the Lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world. So they're aware of who Jesus is, but now he's just walking down the shore one day and calls out to him, come follow me, and they do. They just roll. Why? Why would someone do that? It's because of the power of those two words. That's how strong and powerful those two words were. Because it was ingrained in the culture To want to hear those words from someone with power, from someone with a position, from a rabbi. It was just ingrained that you wanted to hear that. That meant you had arrived at the highest level. And at some point in their life, all four of them had been told by a rabbi, you don't have what it takes. Go back home and go fish. Just a quick history of how education worked in the first century. If you were a Jew in the first century, here's how you were educated. At the age of six, you went to Hebrew school. Okay, it's no different than how it is here. We go to kindergarten, five or six years of age, right? At age six, you go to school. From the age of six to ten, you went to the house of books. That's the name of the school. You went to the House of Books for four years. Now, every student was taught this. Every child was taught this. Or boy, Every boy, sorry, we hadn't evolved yet. But every boy was taught for four years the first five books of the Old Testament, which is called the Torah. The word Torah means the way. So a six to 10 year old was taught to memorize the first five books of the Old Testament, which was the way to life. The Torah, the way, the way to life. It was how God asked his people to live different from the rest of the world. God said, My children will be separate. They will be holy. They will be set apart. How they would be set apart from the rest of the world is lined out in the first five books of the Old Testament. They memorized it. Can you imagine your seven year old coming home from school and quoting Genesis to you? Not just Genesis 1 1, Genesis, all 50 chapters. They've got it memorized. And by the time they're 10, they all had the first five books memorized. They knew the way of life, the way to God. They knew that. At 10, there was a hard cut. The best and the brightest got to go on to the book of learning. That was the name of the next school, the book of learning. Most were told at the age of 10, go home, learn your family's profession. Go learn from your daddy what to do. Go learn from your mommy, what to go. just go figure it out. That's why Jesus was referred to as a carpenter. He got cut. (laughs) The Son of God got cut from Hebrew school. That's funny to me. Okay? But he, he got cut. So, that's interesting to me. But we will see that Jesus probably didn't need school because he was the Son of God. The next school school of learning, that was from ages 10 to 14. In this school, they would learn the rest of the Old Testament. So in all 39 books, if you look at your Bible, the Old Testament is the vast majority of it. By the age of 14, all of that memorized word for word. That's impressive. But that wasn't all. They also memorized the oral traditions. These were from the centuries past, famous rabbis saying, here's my dissertation on creation. And there would be pages of what this rabbi taught on creation. And they memorized that. They also learned the art of the question. In first century Jewish culture, you mastered a subject when you could ask intelligent questions about it. It's no different today. Most people can regurgitate information. But when you can ask an intelligent question, it means you've thought through the process and you're taking it to the next level. When Jesus' parents forgot him in Jerusalem, they left him there for a few days at the age of 12, When they finally realized, went back and got him, what was he doing? He was sitting around with the religious elite, the scholars of the day, and they were amazed, is what scripture says, they were amazed at his ability to ask questions. Now, if you don't understand the context, you might say he was just sitting there wanting to learn, you know, like a little giddy boy, but that's not it at all. He was schooling them with his questions. So you say this, but what about this? Showing a mastery. of of the word of God, because he is God. He had a little bit of a heads up. So at the age of 14, if you made it through, you were bright, you were intelligent, you were capable. What you would do is very similar to applying to a college today. You would ask a rabbi, probably not your local rabbi, but you would ask a rabbi to be their disciple. You would apply to be. They would interview you, what they wanted to know. Can you do what I do? Can you teach what I teach? And when I'm done, can you be me? Can you represent me in my absence? That's what they would want to know. They would interview hundreds, thousands, I don't know, of potential candidates and usually pick one. And the words that were spoken were always the same words. The one that they wanted to come be their disciple, the one that they wanted to teach, to do what they do and teach what they teach and represent them in their absence, that one would be told this, come follow me, follow me. That was the call That was the acceptance letter. That was what every young Jewish boy wanted to hear and very, very, very few got to. And now Jesus, a rabbi, a teacher, spiritual leader, a shepherd, comes walking down the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, looks out at four ordinary fishermen and says the words that they had hoped to hear years earlier. Hey, you, come follow me. Come on. And in Matthew 16, 24, it's the exact same thing. Jesus is saying, what you must do to be my disciple is follow me. You've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross. But you also then have to do what I do, teach what I teach, and represent me in my absence. Luke actually adds a little bit more context to the story. Some people say that what is described in Luke chapter 5 are two different occurrences I believe it's one and the same, just Luke is adding to what happened in the story to set up Luke chapter five, same morning where Jesus calls those four disciples. They had been fishing that entire night before and hadn't caught squat. And when it says that they were mending their nets when Jesus came up, what they were doing is they were preparing them and getting ready for the next night's fishing. So they were done. They're going home. They're going to eat some breakfast. They're going to get some sleep. They're going to get ready to fish the next night. They'd had a bad night. All they wanted to do was get home. Jesus comes along walking on the shore. He sees Peter in his boat and he says, hey, can I borrow your boat for a minute? All these people following me, they want me to teach them. I would love to use your boat as a pulpit. Can we just go out a few feet from shore and that way I can teach to the masses? Peter doesn't want to do it. He wants to get home, but he's like, you know what? I I know who you are. Come on, jump in my boat. Jesus goes and teaches. We don't know for how long. It doesn't appear that it lasted very long. It was a short sermon that day. And so then when they're done, Peter's like, finally, I get to go home. Jesus says, hey, what I'd rather you do is uh, let's go out in a deeper water. I, I'm ready to fish with you. I want to do some more fishing. And Peter goes, look, Jesus, I fished all night. Right out there where you're pointing. The fish, aren't, the fish aren't there. Maybe they'll be there tonight, but they're not there now. We don't fish during the middle of the day. So I, I would rather not. But he says this, he goes, master. He doesn't call him Lord. He's not identifying him as the son of God. But he is saying, "I, I, captain. I don't want to do this. I'm going to prove to you that this is a bad idea, but I'll go out there just to humor you. They go out, they lower their nets. They catch so many fish, they can't pull them back in the boat. They have to call all their buddies over to pull the fish back in the boat. This is months worth of revenue that Jesus just put in their net. I don't like to fish because I never catch anything. I think I would enjoy fishing with Jesus. I really do. (laughs) I think I would enjoy some time on the water with Jesus. But they pull in so many fish that they cannot get it into the boat, literally. And after this has occurred, after this miraculous catch, here's what Luke records in verses 8 through 11 of Luke chapter 5. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. So he went down on all fours, forehead to knees of Jesus. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. You are incredible. There is something very special about you, Lord, but I'm sinful and I do not belong in your presence. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. So James and John had come over to help pull in the nets. They're, there! they're amazed. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. I'm changing your outlook. I'm changing the course of your life. I'm calling you to something different. I'm coming you to come follow me. I am changing your life. You will now fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, which I believe includes the month's worth of salary for the fish. They left all of that and they followed Jesus. I just wonder, is there anyone in the room who can just kind of understand Peter's thinking here? Jesus, I can't be your disciple because I'm a mess. I'm a sinful person. I can't do what you do. I can't teach what you teach. And I can't represent you in your absence because I'm not you. I'm an absolute filthy wretch of a human being. So I can't follow you. I'm sorry. I want to, but I can't. You just changed my life with one catch, with one cast of the net. That's what you can do. I can't do that. I fished all night and caught nothing. I can't do what you do. I can't be you. And Jesus goes, I know. I know. But I'll teach you how. Just come follow me. Leave it all on the line, put put it all aside, shove it away and just come follow me and I will show you how to do what I do. But you gotta be willing to come follow me. How many of us feel like we're unworthy? Jesus, I I don't deserve this blessing, this kind of blessing, this many fish. Fish are figurative, of course, not in this story, but in our life. What, What is the miraculous catch that God has shown you? If you can't think of anything, then I'll give you one for sure that he died on a cross for your sins. That's miraculous. That's enough. That's enough blessing. But I imagine there's something you can point at that you're like, I don't deserve that. That's too much, God. I, I, I don't deserve that kind of blessing. But he goes, you're right, you don't. But I give because I love you. You're right, you're not worthy. But you know what? I am. And I love using average people. The ones that the rabbis at the age of 10 said would never amount to nothing. That's the kind of people I want representing me. I want the average person, the broken person, because I can transform you from the inside out if you'll let me. But I need you. I need you to follow me. Jesus is very clear after making any kind of demand like this. He's always very clear to quantify the cost and to encourage you and I and those who he's speaking to. To make sure they count the cost. Make sure you understand that denying yourself, taking up your cross daily, and being a disciple of Jesus will cost you everything. He wants you to know ahead of time the terms of the deal. Here's the deal you can't do this halfway, it will cost you everything. Are you okay with those terms? And I need you to count that out. I need you to think about that before you just say yes. Because I don't want you to get all excited about the come follow me language. And then in six months, when your family is no longer with you, when your friends have abandoned you, when life is not as easy and rosy as you thought it was going to be following me, I don't want you to quit then. I want you to count the cost now before you make your decision. One such time when Jesus does this is in Luke 14, 27 through 33. Here's what he says to those following him at this point. He said, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Simple. If you don't take up your cross daily, if you don't deny yourself, you can't follow me. You you can't be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost? That word estimate means literally count out the marbles. You look at the whole thing, the material cost, the labor cost. You look at it all before you even start. Before you start, you don't want to get halfway through this. And he says that, won't you sit down first and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you. They'll say this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. They came out of the gates hot, but then they hit a wall. They hit some pushback. They had some trouble and they quit. But for everyone to see, you laid a foundation, but you couldn't finish the race. Verse 31, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able, with 10,000 men, to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? This seems to be a count the cost of can you win a battle? 10,000 versus 20,000. The outcome of that fight is almost always the army of 20,000 wins. But here's the reality. The The truth is it's almost always. What Jesus is asking here in this parable is, Are you willing, are you willing to give up your 10,000 men in hopes of victory? Are you willing to go fight what appears to be a stronger army knowing that you're on the winning team? Have you count the cost? It might cost you everything, but he's guaranteeing the victory. If he's not able to wrestle through that and willing to give up all 10,000 men, then he'll need to send a delegation while the others are still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. That's one way of doing it. Hey, you, you don't have to follow me, Jesus says. You don't have to do this. But as we talked about last week, choosing not to follow Jesus, choosing not to fully commit your life to him, he lets us know what the outcome of that is as well. And that's eternity separated from God. So to follow Jesus means it will cost you everything. You need to know that, but you need to know in the end, you will be on the winning team. Verse 33, In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. A lot of people think that that means material possessions, everything you have, your material possessions. If you don't give them all away, you can't truly love Jesus. Now, while I think material possessions absolutely can hinder us from following Jesus, from loving God, I absolutely think they can. This is not saying you have to be a pauper. Completely impoverished to follow Jesus, that's not what it's saying. It's saying, give up everything. That means all of yourself. Back again to denying yourself and taking up your cross. If you don't do that, though, you can't be my disciple. You can't be my follower. What Jesus is asking is, will you risk everything you have to follow me? I want you to meticulously weigh the cost of that. And then if you realize that the cost is worth it to be on the winning team, then I want you to choose to come be my disciple. I want you to make that choice after you've weighed the cost. The cost of being on the winning team is everything, but it's worth it. That's what Jesus wants us to see. He doesn't want this to be a surprise. To be Jesus' disciple, you must do what he did, okay? That's the first step of following him. You must do what he did. That means you must live a life of holiness, Honesty. You must live a life of purpose. You must live a life of passion. You must live a life worthy of God. That's not easy to do, but that's doing what Jesus did. Now, I could fill up 10 pages of what Jesus did, I could could easily fill that up. So, I mean, these things are just, just small buckets and categories, but I do want us to understand that following Jesus is doing what he did, and he lived differently from the rest of the world. We must live as he lived. We must do as he did. We also must teach what he taught. And you're like, how can I teach what Jesus taught? That's impossible. He's Jesus and I'm not. Well, the great news is a lot of what he taught is recorded in this thing called the Bible. And so you can go read what he taught. You can read it as often as you want until you know it inside out. But knowing it's one thing, applying it to your life is another When you apply what Jesus taught to your life, then you are able to teach what he taught without even using words sometimes. Your life is a lesson. Your life is an example of what Jesus taught in the way that you love and serve others, in the way that you're generous and kind. Your life becomes that example. Now, there will be times when you need to use words to teach the truth of Jesus, absolutely. But your life can be the greatest lesson of all. And finally, the last demand of following Jesus, doing what he did, teaching what he taught, and then representing him or being him in his absence. As the band comes back up here, this passage isn't going to be on the screen because it doesn't need to be. But in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul, he he said this bold statement. He goes, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Here's what he's saying as he walks into a town called Corinth, who knows nothing of Jesus, wants nothing to do with Jesus, knows nothing of God, wants nothing to do with God. They have many other gods, but they love their pagan life. And he starts to preach the gospel in a town like this. And they go, well, that's great. You're telling me to surrender my life to a person named Jesus. I don't know this Jesus. I don't know who this Jesus is. And he goes, oh, that's okay. You don't need to meet Jesus. Just look at me. Just look at me. If, if you see me, you've seen Jesus. Now that sounds abundantly arrogant, right? If you've seen me, you've seen Jesus. Like that, who, no one can say that. But that's exactly what he said. And that's exactly what Jesus asks of his disciples. When someone sees you, can you say they've seen Jesus? And all of us in this room are like, no, no, no way. But you're forgetting that it's not a perfect image of Jesus. Of course, we can't fully be Jesus. But can't we live our lives in such a way as to show others a picture of who he is? Just a rough sketch? Follow my example, do as I do, as I follow the example of Jesus doing what he did? I think we get scared and I think we limit ourselves before we even try. The final command of Jesus is to follow me. These words would excite every person in the first century who heard them. I pray that they excite you. Because that's what Jesus demands of those who want to follow him, of those who want to be his disciple. That's the call. To deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow him. The only question is are you ready to do that? Have you fully counted the cost? And are you ready to make that decision? To declare him Lord and Savior of your life, to say, I will be your disciple. I will do what you do, teach what you taught, and represent you in your absence. If if you're not ready to make that decision, then I think there's some things that we can do. You can take communion this morning to just be reminded of the many blessings that Jesus has already given you. His life being the biggest and greatest blessing of all. That your sins have been forgiven, that you can spend eternity with Him and God the Father in heaven. That's huge. Take communion to remind yourself of that. We're going to have people up front that would love to pray with you about anything you have going on. But really, today, you just need to wrestle in your own heart. If Jesus were standing here today and He said those words, Come follow me, how would you respond? Father, I pray today that through your Holy Spirit, we would all hear those words from your son and that our hearts would be moved to respond with a yes, with a, I will leave everything behind and I will come follow you. Help remove those obstacles and barriers. Give us faith and grace where necessary. Strength to overcome our own fears. But God, come and move mightily for your glory. Come and raise up within this church disciples who will make disciples for your glory. For God, there is no greater calling in our life than to be a follower of yours. Help us see that, Lord. Help us see that now. Come and move in our midst. In your name we pray. Amen.